Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Jason Shepard. He's part of the University of Utah. He's a uh, biochemistry adjunct associate professor, also uh, in neurobiology and anatomy and ophthalmology. So we're going to talk about uh, a concept I'll let him describe about how uh, networks of cells uh, work together and possibly talk to each other. So, Jason, thanks for coming. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me. Well, can you describe your research? What are you working on? Yeah, so the the main question my lab is uh, trying to address is how does the brain uh, store information? How does the brain uh, allow us to have memory or memories, you know, for up to a lifetime, despite the fact that most of the proteins in your cells uh, don't last very long. And so we're trying to understand at the molecular level, how the cells in your brain are able to store information um, and allow us to recall those experiences that we have throughout a lifetime. Do you think it's uh, inside of a particular cell is where things are stored? Or what about the, uh, the particular connections amongst, let's say, a bunch of brain neurons? That structure, maybe that retains somehow uh, certain memories and things. The, the basic idea is that um, there's a structure in the brain called the hippocampus that we know is absolutely required for making new memories. And, in, and we, we know a fair amount of um, how that um, structure is arranged, how the cells in that part of the brain act together. And when you are learning and, and you're having an experience, there's a certain uh, specific set of cells in the hippocampus that are active. And it's those cells that are encoding that experience and then after the experience, there's this consolidation period where those active neurons are con- become connected to each other through their synaptic connections. And, and so that, that um, process is called plasticity. So synaptic uh, plasticity, where the connections between those cells that were active during that experience become wired together. And so then when you recall the memory at some other later point, it's that specific circuit that's activated and you only need a few cells in that circuit to activate the rest of the cells. And, um, and so we think then that it's this plasticity process of wiring up those cells into that specific circuit is how you get information stored. And so we're, we're quite interested in the genes and proteins that are required for setting up the, the plasticity and, and allowing that plasticity occur. Well, what's the fewest number of observed neurons that can store a, a memory or a response, you know, maybe in rats or in people? What's, what's been observed? The fewest number of cells. Yeah, I, I guess that's hard to say. Obviously, in animals that are not as complex, so like a fly, for example, um, which, you know, all animals learn. So all brains have evolved to, to learn and adapt to their environments. You know, in a fly, a fly only has about a million cells, and 
in this brain and um, maybe only a couple of hundred are required for a specific uh, memory. In as you move up into more complex animals that have um, you know higher cognition, then it gets harder to to say what the number is. Um, and and certainly in humans, when you have these rich what we call episodic memories, where you you know you have all these sensory information that that is combined with your conscious experience, um, it's undoubtedly thousands to millions of cells that are actually required for for that experience. Well, the reason why I ask is perhaps that might be an easier model to understand. If if there was an instance in a I don't know a worm or a fruit fly or something where or a cockroach, you know maybe only ten cells are involved in something. I don't know avoiding light, something like that. Maybe oh yeah, so for sure quantify um, what's going on. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, uh, the history of this field sort of um, came out of classic experiments done by Eric Kandel, um, who won the. Nobel Prize for his work, and actually he he decided to use a very simple system in the plesia, which is a sea slug. And part of that reason for that was that the sea slug has these well-defined neurons, doesn't have a lot of them, and they're huge, so you can actually see them without a fancy microscope. And so he actually, his lab figured out a lot of the rules of plasticity using that simple model and simple forms of learning like uh, habituation. So many animals have a reflex. If you touch them, they'll withdraw you know, an appendage. Uh, but if you keep on touching it, it learns that it's probably not dangerous. And so that you know, it's habituated to the, the, that sensory information. So it's a very simple kind of learning in, in a very simple organism. But um, indeed, that's how... Uh, quite a lot of the initial rules about how these synaptic connections work came, came out, came from um, my lab. We, we work mostly on mice, but we also do some fly work, some Drosophila work. So what have you been able to ascertain? Um, I guess, I would guess that I guess there's a structural component certainly to memory and brain, but you say you're looking at a molecular level. What, what are you seeing? Yeah, so my, my lab's kind of concentrated on this one gene called ARC, A-R-C. And in fact, this gene has taken us down an interesting line of work. Uh, initially, I was quite interested in it because we know that if you take it out of mice, the brain is wired up normally, but they cannot, they just cannot remember anything for long periods of time. So this, uh, short, this conversion of, of short-term to long-term memory requires this gene. And so we've been trying to figure out why it's so important. We know that when you learn, this gene gets turned on. So it's rapidly made in those active neurons that make up the the memory circuit. And then one of its functions is to regulate the strength of those synaptic connections between cells. And that so that kind of makes sense with the model. But a few years ago, we made this really interesting discovery that the protein that this gene encodes has this viral origin. So it's kind of kind of uh, an interesting story. And the, the bottom line is that this gene we think evolved from an ancient viral element that infected an ancestor uh, 400 million years ago. And it's retained, what's really fascinating is it's retained a lot of the, the biology of, of this virus and especially in terms of how retroviruses work. And we think that 
in our own brains, this gene is being made it's, and it's, it's retained some of this viral biology where it's actually signaling from, from one cell to another cell using something called a, a capsid, so a, a protein capsid that viruses usually use to transfer their, their, their own genetic material. So kind of a wild story, and we're still trying to figure out exactly why you need this kind of biology for memory, um, but it's, it's taken us down this very different road where now we think that part of how we end up getting this sort of complex ability to remember things came from this random virus you know, ages ago. <laughs> well, what does that mean? Does that mean that neurons are sending extracellular vesicles to each other as part yeah, of communication? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, what viruses normally do is they take advantage of host cell biology and viral capsids. The final infectious particle uh, looks very much like a, an extracellular vesicle. But here we've got this endogenous gene that's being expressed in, in neurons um, and it's getting out uh, of cells in an extracellular, a specialized extracellular vesicle where we think that this capsid that it's forming is, is transferring inf important information from one cell to the another cell in the form of RNA. But we're still trying to figure out what that signal is and why you would need this. And it sort of doesn't fit in the classic model of, of, of memory, but we think it's, you know, it's opening new avenues for research in terms of really trying to get, figure out what's going on there. I mean, from my interviews, talking to people, I mean, all cells put out extracellular vesicles in mass. They take them in too pretty readily. So I, how, how would you identify that uh, there's a specialized EV coming out of the neurons? I mean, like, you know, EVs, I guess, are notoriously hard to process and they're tiny and their membranes can shred easily in centrifugation. So how do you know what's in the EVs and how they're packaged? That's a good question. I mean, it's, it's a real problem in that field in general. And we, we also come across that. So, you know, there's functional experiments. There's, we, we've tried a, various ways of purifying these vesicles. And so you're absolutely right that neurons, just like other cells, are making a, a bunch of different extracellular vesicles. And the challenge is to isolate the ones that you're mostly interested in. And so ARC is only in, you know, a subset of like 10% 10, 10 of the vesicles. We've worked out some ways of isolating that population. We've also been using recombinant protein that we purify from bacteria that form the capsids and then sort of do very, you know, reduced uh, preparations to get at what the capsid can do. But we're, so we're approaching this from various angles. And one of the big questions, of course, is what is the cargo that Arcus is, is actually transferring into the vesicle and and what's the functional relevance of that in the cells that take up those vesicles. Can you manually establish connections between cells or only the organism can do that? I'm sure you could break them. So like manually. The way, like, how about <laughs> I mean, and what, what do you mean? Let's step back. So what, what do the connections look like when you have a bunch of neurons that, you know, people would say are wired together. What does that mean physically? What happens? Yeah. So in a circuit, a neural circuit, you've got hundreds of cells, thousands of cells, thousands of connections and so to sort of give you an idea of the size that we're talking about the one cell the cell body is you know a tenth of a millimeter at best so it's 100 microns and then these processes can go for millimeters so they they send those those uh, dendrites and axons out to connect to each other but one well-connected cell can connect to thousands of other cells so it's in an actual brain tissue it's extremely 
densely, you know, densely connected. There's hundreds of hundreds of thousands of synapses. So it's very difficult to try and manually manipulate them in a way. But but what we can do is interfere with proteins that we know are important for either the structure of the synapse or the or the receptors at synapses. So we can target those receptors that are involved in the you know strengthening or weakening those synapses. And then we can also try and figure out what proteins are selectively useful for. Uh, the plasticity of those synapses, not just you know the the basal function of them. So there's there's definitely tools we can use, genetic tools and and uh, pharmacology we can use to interfere and and look at how those uh, connections work. There's also newer technology where we can actually put in channels that are light sensitive but are not normally active until we shine a light on them. And that and that's actually another neat way to causally uh, activate a set of cells and their connections between each other. Oh, you can add in additional connections that are light activated. We can put in a light activated channel in a subpopulation of neurons. We haven't got quite to the point where we can put them in selective synapses, but that's actually something we're we're working on as well. But we can certainly um, engineer them so that they go to um, specific cells. So, for example. We can tag the neurons that are active during learning, come back uh, later and shine uh, a light on the cells that were tagged with the channel during learning and, and basically reactivate that circuit and then observe the mouse to see if the mouse seems to be recalling the memory. And that that is indeed the case, that, that we can sort of come back and the animal's not in a environment let's say we conditioned the animal to know that there's a, a, a reward in a particular kind of uh, context or a box or something we could basically then substitute the box with light we can shine a light on the animal animal's brain and because we've tagged those neurons that are active during learning now the mouse thinks that it's in that box where the reward is I mean, for instance can you have a mouse run a maze that it has never been run through it knows it already yeah, we haven't got that far yet. So in order to know, in order to be able to do that, we would have to know exactly which synaptic connections to activate and, and, and whatnot. And that we can't do that without the animal experiencing something or learning something first. So that kind of inception of memories, we're not there yet. Well, if, yeah, if you could see the detail, find enough detail on what happens during a learning experience, I mean, you probably wouldn't be able to recreate it nearly Exactly. But I wonder if you could uh, make a few connections to, you know, that mimics it and then maybe jumpstart the learning process somehow. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Uh, yeah, no, that's possible. I mean, in, in a crude way, we can um, predict which, which neurons would elicit that kind of response. But in terms of, yeah, as you say, the detailed information in a, in a particular memory that we're far away from in terms of reconstructing without uh, any prior experience. I'm sure there's people that look at the connections in the network and I would guess it's 3D in all directions. I mean, it's certainly not, I guess, 2D, um, but has anyone tried to picture it and see what they can elucidate from the structure of the connections? Yeah, I mean, but we're talking about a, a scale that's um, immense, right? So one synapse is maybe a hundred nanometers at, at best 
Uh, and if you've got hundreds of thousands of these, you basically, the only way to reconstruct the full, what, what we would call connectome is by electron microscopy. So there has been some recent, you know, large scale studies to try and reconstruct a, a, a certain volume of brain tissue, like a, a cubic millimeter. But the amount of information and data in that one cubic millimeter is like more than most of the computers that you have online right now. So trying to make sense of that information is is what's challenging, even if you've overcome the the hurdle of of actually imaging that volume, that piece of volume. But but we're, you know, I think the pace of technology is pretty amazing. And so again, they've they've sort of done this with the fly brain where they've reconstructed almost the whole fly brain to that kind of resolution where you could look at synapse level. But but you know that's it's taken them years to reconstruct one fly, <laughs> one brain. And um, and so we're really far from figuring out how the dynamics work. So it's a snapshot of how the brain looks when you killed the animal. But the one thing that we have learned about how information is encoded and stored is that it's very dynamic, that there's new synapses, there's synapses that are getting re- removed, there's new connectivity. So it, it's, uh, it's an extremely hard problem because you're now talking about trying to reconstruct these thousands to millions of synapses over across time so that we have not been able to do yet. Well, as so you say, synapses get removed as well? Yeah, it, you can think of it as sort of a, a sculpture or, or you know, um, a tree that you're trying to sculpt into a, a shape. And so you let certain branches grow, but let you cull others, you prune basically the leaves of some of the branches. So it's the sort of very fine-tuned uh, sculpting of the circuit that includes removing synapses, removing connections that don't make sense. So, I mean, I guess I can imagine like a whole bunch of uh, people in a room very close together and they could reach out their arms and touch one another or pull their arm away and they can change the dynamics of how everyone's connected just as a really simple thought experiment. And I guess that would kind of approximate what's going on. With, with neurons yeah kind of so i guess the way, w- one way to think about it is that so when you um when your brain is developing and and wiring up there it's the beginning it's all about the genetics and there's essentially cues that tell the synapses where to go and then once you've got sort of that rough plan of of how the brain works then you need the fine tuning uh sculpting and that's where learning comes in and experience comes in and refines those connections and those those synapses and the way that can happen is is in in various ways so uh, we were talking about strengthening and weakening of synapses um and that can be at a structural level but it could also be at the functional level where you just have more receptors or more neurotransmitter that's being released so i guess um what's the speed of uh signaling between cells that are connected by synapses versus if they're using extracellular vesicles. Like if you look at the speed of action of those two, what's the difference? It's big. So, you know, when you're talking about electrical activity in the brain, the firing of, of cells, of neurons, that's in the millisecond domain. Whereas to move and make an extracellular vesicle and then to have it get taken up, we're talking about minutes to hours. So they're doing oh, very different well, things. I thought they're constantly being produced and taken in and remade and I thought it was a kind of a continuous process. 
Um, I mean, that may be the case for some some extracellular vesicles, but it, but it, in this case, we we think it's a highly dynamic process that's controlled by this uh, this gene, and so it, it's timed to experience. So it's it's definitely not a constitutive process that's always ongoing. And uh, but yeah, the time scale is quite different to to the regular synaptic activity that you can measure. So do you think the EVs are like a reinforcement for more important memories or learnings or long-term memories? Yeah, exactly. So uh, we think that, that perhaps this cell-to-cell signal is, is um, it's certainly involved in consolidation. And we know that that takes minutes to hours to, to happen. And it's somehow stabilizing the circuit. And how it's doing that, we don't know. So yeah, that's, that's the sort of main question we're trying to figure out right now, actually. Well, you could have a bunch of cells connected and see if you could block the EVs for a period of time and see what would happen to the network, maybe. If you had just a few in a dish that were connected, if you can keep them alive, and again, block the EVs somehow, um, would the connections fall apart, you know, that kind of thing, maybe you could figure out the interaction there. Yeah, so, we, I mean, we're approaching this in many different ways. So we have uh, cells in a dish. We also have mice that we can interfere with this pathway. The nice thing about this looking like a retrovirus is that there's been decades of work on HIV and other retroviruses. And we have a structure of the capsid that we've obtained through our collaborators uh, at, at the UK with John Briggs at the LMB. And so we can now predict which... which uh, amino acids are required to make the capsid and then mutate them so that what we end up having is a mutant protein that cannot form the capsid, but it has everything else we would think uh, normal. And so right now we're testing, you know, whether those mutant mice or, you know, putting that, that, that mutant protein in mice, um, how it affects the network and, and um, whether it's absolutely required for that consolidation of memory process. Well, when you say, there's a capsid. Do you mean like there's a, a membrane for the EV and then inside of the EV, there is RNA packaged inside its own capsid? Exactly. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I know EVs are pretty similar to viruses. They can enter a cell and affect its function, et cetera. But so you're saying that, okay, some of these, uh, our own genes are making virus-like particles. So exactly. Packaging. We think actually that there's, I mean, there's at least a dozen other predicted genes that have similar viral domains. And so we're also looking to see if those genes retain similar biology. And it's it's looking promising that there could be a whole repertoire of endogenous viral-like capsids that are being made in, in different cell types. So there's no apparent instruction by a virus. These cells are not infected. They're just, you know... They know how to make capsids in certain circumstances. Yeah, certain exactly. Genes know how to do that. Yep, yep. So these are real genes. They've lost all the other bits and pieces of, of viruses or, or retrotransposons, the, these transposable elements, and they've been cemented in the genome for many, many, you know, millions of years, and and that's and so they've become this sort of real uh, gene. What's kind of cool is that you know this is an emerging theme that these transposable element sequences, these viral sequences are um, all over the place in, in genomes. And the human genome has up to like 50% of our genome is, is of that of viral origin. And only, you know, three to 5% of the genome is actually coding for genes. And, um, and so 
it's it's turning out i think that a lot of these sequences can end up being used by evolution to create new genes so are these herbs are these previously endogenized retroviruses that are forming these uh these rna and these capsids or is it i mean what do you call i guess human genes that are doing this like this yeah, art, i mean what, what is it these are just genes they don't have so they've lost those viral elements so as you say there's Another form, there's another <laughs> group of um, sequences in the genome called endogenous retroviruses. And I, we were only just now sort of figuring out what, what's happening there. And it, it turns out, of course, that some of these endogenous retroviruses can actually be expressed, uh, and especially in the context of aging and disease. But these are more recent events where, you know, an ancient retrovirus or not ancient, an, an older retrovirus has infected a population and it's integrated into that population, but it still has a lot of the viral bits and pieces that are, that you can recognize as opposed to this gene that has lost all those bits and pieces and what has been retained is the structural component of the capsid and, and a few other things that make it um, look like a retrovirus, but it's not. So it's sort of, you know, a little fuzzy in that <laughs> we're making these distinctions between the a gene, an endogenous retrovirus, a retrotransposon, and a retrovirus. I wonder why there's this extra capsid packaging. Maybe if an EV gets ripped open, uh, this will still survive. Maybe it's a more important cargo. Or maybe once the uh, EV enters into a cell, the, the membrane gets absorbed to the cell membrane, and now you're left with the interior contents. And again, so that they can passage properly inside of a cell, they need their own caps in some of them. Right. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, good question. So we've obviously puzzled over this too. You know, the extracellular vesicle field is lacked from mechanistic insight into one, how do you select for cargo, and how do you actually get cargo into cells? The way viruses fuse membranes is they have a specific protein that can do that. And it's not clear what that protein equivalent is in extracellular vesicles. So the capsid, for one, as you say, uh, can, can be used to stabilize cargo. So RNA is inherently very unstable and, and there's lots of proteins and whatnot in cells that can degrade the, the RNA one reason to have a capsid is that it's going to protect that RNA and, and, and have it in a very stable format. Whereas a naked extracellular vesicle with RNA could, could really get rapidly degraded even once it's outside the cell. So that's one idea. The other idea is, uh, is selection. So the capsid can, can certainly be a mechanism to select for a specific uh, cargo that can then get packaged into the extracellular vesicle. Huh. That's crazy. Yeah. Have, have you been able to isolate these uh, capsid-enclosed you know, RNA fragments and, and study them you know, using electron microscopy and look at their structure and see if they have spike proteins or things like that on them? We, we've started to do that. So we published a paper earlier this year at Nature Neuroscience where we reconstructed the fly capsid. Uh, and actually, if you look at the images on the, uh, in that paper, there are spiky bits. There's spiky proteins. <laughs> Uh, spiky structures that are coming out of the capsid, but uh, well, unlike a like a real retrovirus, this is all encoded by one protein, the gag protein. And retroviruses, the spike protein that retroviruses encode, is a separate gene that that's in the the sequence. So it's going to be interesting to see, you know, what the parallels are here of of the, what that spike protein is. 
but it's it's uh, it's going to be slightly different. Does, you know, now that you've isolated it and looked at the capsid, does it look like any other viruses out there? Is it similar? And if so, to what kinds? Yeah, it's it's very similar to HIV, for example, um, and foamy viruses. So 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 retroviruses in general. Evolutionally speaking, it's, it's, it's fascinating. So we actually think that it's most related to a retrotransposon. And so retrotransposons have most of the same bits and pieces that retroviruses have, except they don't have usually that, that spike protein, that envelope protein. But they are also f- able to form viral particles, viral-like particles in a similar-looking capsid. Uh, and it's thought that the retrotransposons are ancestral to, to the retroviruses. So here we've got a brain gene <laughs> that has homology and is, has evolved from a, an ancient retrotransposon that forms capsids that look like uh, HIV capsids. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, that says that cells seem to have a, um, I mean, well, almost all living forms, I guess, seem to have a, a similar sets of abilities and they can make similar things. You know, evolution's very good at taking advantage of things that work. And so I, I, I guess it, it shouldn't be too surprising that if, if a virus can take advantage of host cell biology, that at some point the host can take advantage of the viral, the viral biology because it, the viruses have solved some s- specific problems that, that would help the organism and, and then evolution doesn't have to reinvent it. So, you know, I think we're, there's going to be more and more of this where we learn that some particular process in animals may have been re- already solved by another sort of more basic form of life. Another example of this is the evolution of the placenta in, in mammals. And that's a crazy story again, where evolutionary, the, the placenta has evolved a number of times, but in every time it has evolved, it's evolved because of a viral envelope protein that's allowed the placenta to fuse with the mom. Uh, so without that viral protein that, that has now become a gene called syncytin, uh, we would not have placentas. Yeah, I've heard some of the new uh, COVID vaccines may express spike, spike proteins and cause people to express antibodies against their own placenta if it's formed. So it could be a problem. Yeah, I haven't heard that. I, uh, there's definitely uh, reports or in many, many cases where if, if a mom is infected and there's immune response that the antibodies to that virus can be transferred to the fetus. Yeah, you just wouldn't want women to make antibodies against placenta formation and therefore be infertile. That's oh, yeah, what, yeah. Uh, no, recently, I, it, it looks like maybe a possibility. Uh, I think that seems unlikely with coronaviruses because that spike protein in the coronavirus looks very different to syncytin or any other placenta. I guess, I yeah, that's what I know anyway. Well, hopefully so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's no, good because you certainly wouldn't want it the other way. Yeah, I think that <laughs> I think if, if there's going to be issues down the road there, we would start to hear about them soon. But as far as I know, that is not something that we should worry about for COVID at least. I mean, there's a lot of things for you guys to figure out. So what are the next steps for your research? What's your goal? I mean, I guess like a one or two year goal. And what are some of the milestones you think that'll show you that you're on the right path? Yeah, and no, I mean, it's, it's we've got a lot to do, which is great. And we've recently got some funding for it. So that's also good. But, you know, so going back to this uh, signaling role of, of, of the EVs that ARC is, is making, we obviously want to know you know what exactly is is arc transporting? What's the how does the, how do they get out of the cell? How do they get taken up into other cells? And then and then of course what's the the function? Do we really need this 
cell-to-cell signal for, for memory consolidation, or is it something else that we're just not aware of? And then we're also quite interested in the long run, you know, figuring out it, what these other genes that look like they could also form capsids are doing. There's another family of them that are expressed in the brain, for example, and not, we don't really know much about what their function is at all. And so it could expand to sort of not just be one gene uh, arc, but but many other genes that could be important for extracellular vesicle-like signaling that use the same sort of capsid uh, approach. Well, again, since uh, synaptic connections are super fast and EV communication is slow, again, do you think it's it's a reinforcement of important learned items to make them into more long-term memories or acquired skills? Or like, what role do you think the EVs have in bolstering this communication and memory and learning and all that? Yeah, I would say that's that's where we're thinking that that of course it's um, because it's slower. It's involved in s- somehow uh, stabilizing the circuit. But what? But until we know what the cargo is, we can't really, you know, we don't really know. But let's say it's um, the main cargo is its own RNA, so it's making more of its own protein in these cells. We one function of that protein when it's not forming a capsid is to remove receptors from synapses so that they are they become weaker and so one idea is that you have these cells that are active that form the network for a specific memory and then you don't want the surrounding neurons to be incorporated into that network unless they were active and so you need a signal to those neurons to say hey let's 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 become weaker let's not interfere with that circuit and so maybe that's the, what ARC is doing is that it's um, able to go to the neighboring cells through these extracellular vesicles and weaken the synapses on them so that they're not ultimately actually incorporated into that circuit. Are you able to tag something so that you'll see it expressed in EVs? And then if you look at a network of cells, you can see that uh, you know, the more EVs are being expressed in certain parts of a cluster or less or... Yeah, I was going to ask you about like with, like with flies. If you've seen the structure, what do the endpoints of the network look like versus like the center? Is there a center? Are there, you know, are there clusters where control seems to be happening, and ones that are kind of outliers? There's only a few connections to them. No, exactly. So we're trying to tag the protein. We're trying to tag the cargo so that we could follow it in vivo in an attacked circuit, and that's that's the big challenge. So we we can do some of this kind of. Um, imaging in, in dissociated cells in a dish, but that's that doesn't really recapitulate the the, the circuit. So we're getting there. We're, we, we're, you know, we, we think that it will be possible to tag cargo or proteins so that we can then observe exactly where they're going when they're released, uh, for example. Um, and then in the fly system, in the fly brain, we're actually still trying to figure out if the fly arc gene is required for memory as well, because I glossed over this, but the the mammalian gene that we're studying is in mammals and all, it's, it's basically in all land uh, vertebrates, but fish don't have the gene. And so we think that this ancestral viral um, infection or, or transposition happened in between fish and amphibians. But then it doesn't make sense that a fly would have that gene because, of course, the flies are invertebrates and are much more older, much older. So turns out that the fly gene is actually a more recent evolutionary event that repurposed the same kind of retrotransposon or viral element because other insects don't really have that arc gene, or at least most insect lineages don't. So 
it's somewhat of a interesting, <laughs> very, you know, every time we've sort of looked at this, uh, we start to d- determine various aspects of the story. It's just got crazier. But anyway, so the bottom line is that we're sort of doing similar experiments in flies to see if they're involved, if the fly gene is involved in memory. We know that it's already expressed at synapses. Um, we just don't know exactly which synapses it's expressed at. Do you know of anyone looking into to see if there's other levels of communication between cells, like biophotonics or any other ways? Or do you think these are the two ways that cells communicate? I mean, what else could there be? There's many other ways. So there's not just vesicles being released, but you know, hormones, which are basically naked proteins, are, are being released all the time. So there's lots of sign- cell-to-cell signaling that happens through the release of, of naked proteins. There's also direct communication where something called a, a nano tunneling tube where <laughs> essentially as it sounds the one cell oh tnt right yeah and then there's yeah i mean i think i guess those are the main ones where either the cell is releasing naked protein that has that can act on receptors many cytokines many hormones that you know that's how they act and so the immune system is full of these signals where you've got proteins that are being released and acting on on um, other cells. And so, you know, and in terms of the extracellular vesicles, I think we're only just now figuring out some of those signaling functions in general. Yeah, it's crazy. Just last question or two, what, what does biogenesis of these EVs look like? Can you see it? Do we know like where in a cell, you know, these, these EVs are made and packaged and assembled and the capsid parts made? Yeah, so that's that's another goal of, of ours, um, and uh, it's it's somewhat of a needle in the haystack because the size of these capsids are less than the the light, you know, the diffraction of, of light. So you kind of have to do EM to definitively show where they're uh, forming. But you know, the two two possibilities are that they form uh, at the cell surface and they bud out like a, an actual virus does. Or they could actually form like an, a normal exosome, which has to go through this endosomal multi-fascicular body compartment, so membrane, membranes inside the cell, and then they get released as a bulk thing. Um, so we're not sure yet exactly where they form um, and how they are released. So a lot of cell biology to still figure out. Yeah, it's it's amazing. The more I learned, and like you said, the more you learn, it's like the complexity is just insane. Yeah, I know. <laughs> What's the best way for people to find out more about your work and your research? Sounds like you get a lot going on. Uh, where can they go? I'm pretty active on social media. So Twitter, Jason Synaptic is my handle. We have a lab website, www.shepherdlab.org. And um, I actually had a TED Med talk that, that, we, that I talk about this work. So that video is, I think, accessible to most audiences. And um, uh, you can find that on my website. Well, very cool. Well, Jason, thanks for coming on the podcast, and it's been a great call. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.